Sweet. Thank you so much. Are you going to set that right? As Alicia just read, we'll be in uh, Psalm 37 today. If you guys have been with us for the last few weeks, uh, you know we are walking through a series uh, called I Feel. Um, And it's a five-week series through the Psalms as we look at different emotions. Um, I think it's really easy for us to know we're all emotional people. Um, And the beauty is the Bible has something to speak into those emotions, has truth uh, to tell us. And today we're going to be looking at the emotion of content, contentment. And really the question that I posed through the title is contentment. Is it possible? So I want each of you guys to to sit there and think, when is a time in my life when I truly felt content? When I felt content. Or maybe for some of you, the easier question to ask is, okay, think of that time when you say, if I have this, I know I'll be content. For so many of us, that's really the question we ask. That's what we're hungering after when we think of contentment. For many of us, when we think of a fully content life, we think of a life where, okay, we've graduated from college. We've moved on from that experience. And for the first time, we actually have a house. We have a job that we actually enjoy going to. And it has benefits. We have that spouse that we've wanted. We've got those kids. We've got that white picket fence or that big backyard with a fire pit that we get to host people, that we get to entertain people. We've got that life that the necessities are met. We even have enough that we can put some away, that we can put some away towards college for our kids or that family vacation that we want. You see, when we think of contentment, We think of what is it that I can have in my life that will satisfy me, where I'll be able to say, okay, I have enough. I am at peace. But my question is, do you think it's actually possible to be emotionally content without those things? If this dream that we're pursuing never actually pans out, is it possible to be content. Today, as we look at Psalm 37, we're going to see real clearly that David says, yes, it is possible to be content, whether you have everything you want in life or whether you have very, very little. And Psalm 37 is unique in the scope of of Psalms, the 150 Uh, that make up the book of Psalms. Uh, Because Psalm 37 is written much more structured like Proverbs. You see how they somewhat flow together, but it's not a progression of thought throughout the whole thing. There's a lot of little statements that can fit on their own. We could honestly take many of these statements and throw them right into the book of Proverbs, and you wouldn't think anything of it. And what's interesting is David actually wrote this psalm as an acrostic, and so each of the kind of two verses, they go through the Hebrew alphabet. Um, And that's a way to help the people of Israel actually remember this psalm. Why he chose to make it 40 verses, I don't know. But he wrote it in such a way so that we can remember it, and I think the beauty of that is because 
we are so prone to forget the truth that are present in this psalm. You see, the psalm speaks to the pursuit of contentment. It's a wisdom psalm as David speaks and urges his people to change their view, to change their perspective on how they view contentment. We're going to see that the main thrust of the words of David, the main thrust of this psalm, is that contentment does not rest upon what you have, but contentment actually rests on who has you. It's not on what you have, but it's who has you. You see, we need to cling to the fact that the Lord of the universe is the one that actually has us. Even as Josh read, as we looked at Matthew 6 today, of seeing God's the one that says, hey, you don't need to fret, you don't need to worry because I'm the one that has you. And as we cling to that, we walk into the psalm and we're going to be looking at two specific questions that this psalm addresses. The first one being, what creates discontentment? And number two, how do we actually fight for contentment in this life? So number one, what creates discontentment? When we look at our lives and we think of the word content, is that a word that you would describe where you're at? Or is it really you can think of small little moments in your life where I could say I was content, but in the overall scheme of things, is content a word you would use to say where you're at right now? Or is it really the search of contentment that has us going from day to day to day? Why are we so discontent with where we're at? David seems to get to the heart of this question as he begins his psalm. In verse 1, he says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Then in verse 7, he uses that same language. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And once again in verse 8, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And it's important to note, kind of prior to moving on, to do a quick little lesson on vocab so we can understand what, what's actually being said here. So first, fret, probably not a word that we use on a daily basis. Um, but fret really is this idea of worrying. So he's saying, do not worry, do not be anxious. Whereas one commentator said, it's this idea of don't get heated, don't get frustrated over the realities of what's going on in the lives of those around you. And then secondly, looking at the word evildoers or wrongdoers. I think it's easy for us to fall in one of two camps where we kind of say, okay, these evildoers, that can kind of be a universal statement for humanity as we know it, because we all know we have done wrong, we have done evil in the sight of the Lord. We take that approach, or we say, okay, it's, it's the Hitlers and Stalins of the world that have done just immense in judgments towards people or injustices towards people and killed millions. But David's not getting at either of those camps. He's saying, hey, evildoers, these are the people that really want nothing to do with God. That, yeah, they might know God exists. He might be a great idea, but at the end of the day, we're just going to live life without him. I'll be satisfied if I never have to actually hear the word God. He does nothing for my life. Those are the evildoers in which he's speaking of. Honestly, it's people that we walk past every single day throughout life where we would never look at them and say, oh, you're a wicked, evil person. 
But the reality is, David's saying, hey, if they want nothing to do with God, they fit into this, this category. And so, so what, is, what is David saying through this do not fret over these evildoers, over those that are prospering? Ultimately, he's saying don't allow your minds to become covetous of these people and what they have. Don't allow jealousy to just creep into your life as you see those prospering and as you see yourself struggling or you just see them prospering more than you are. He even goes so far to say that, hey, if we are pursuing this covetous, jealous lifestyle, he actually says it tends only to evil, that by having this mindset, by having this pursuit, we're actually going to become evil in and of ourselves. So it's this covetousness, this jealousy that is actually creating discontentment in our lives. It's the comparison game that we play in our heads. And I think living in this instant gratification culture in which we do just elevates that even more, that we want something and we want it now. And that's not fair because my neighbor has it or my roommate has it. Why can't I have it now? And if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, okay, well, this is a lot easier said than done. Just, hey, don't fret. I know even this very week, I've been struggling with discontentment in my own life, which is always great how the Lord uses scripture and even what you're preaching on to work in your own life. Anna, my wife, and I were looking for a place to live in about a month or a month and a half, and trying to go through that process in Corvallis just breeds discontentment. Because time after time, you pursue that place you want, and then you found out, oh, five minutes ago, somebody else just got it. Or, hey, we need bank statements from the last, like, 10 years to get you qualified for this place. And it's that struggle of just, well, I, I want this. Or then you look at your parents, and you see, okay, my, well, my parents have it all together. My parents have an awesome house. My parents have money in the bank. And I think, yeah, my parents are 30-plus years older than me, but I want what they have right now. See, if you're anything like me, you're realizing this is easier said than done. See, contentment is this never-ending, feels like losing battle with comparison and coveting. In school, we look at the people that don't really study at all and can go into a test, and they're the ones that like set the bar for everybody else. They're the ones that get a 99 when the class average is like a 50. And you think, that's not fair. Why is that happening? Or just financially, you're struggling to get by. Maybe that's through student loans where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay this back on a teacher's salary. Or maybe that's just paying barely to get by month to month. And we look at the people around us, people that want nothing to do with God, and, and they're successful. It seems like they're thriving. Or maybe it's at work, and we just feel stuck. We're looking for that promotion, and time in and time out, we get rejected for it. Or we just hate our jobs, but we have to continue to get by. As we see those around us, where it might even be unethical, are able to climb through the corporate rank. Or for the college student, I think a lot of times it's, it's not looking at the now, but it's looking to the future. And saying, hey, I know so-and-so, they graduated two years ago, and this is the job that they have. And so we just cannot wait to get to that spot. 
We cannot wait for one year from now, or really a month from now when we graduate, or four years when we're able to move on and actually experience life for the first time, to have this contentment. You see, we live by the mantra, the grass is greener on the other side. Yet we realize once we get to the other side, there's always another side. And it can just be a perpetual cycle of going from one lawn to the next, seeing it as greener and greener and greener, always wanting more. The words of Teddy Roosevelt ring so true. Comparison is the thief of joy. You see, the question David's really getting at is, what are you living for? Contentment rests in the answer to this question. Is your joy and satisfaction in the next accolade through school? Or is it in that next boyfriend or girlfriend or that future marriage that is fast approaching? Is contentment in the next child or maybe that first child? Is contentment in the promotion, the house, or just looking forward to graduation in a month? Or looking forward to five years from now when you feel like you have your, you think your life will be settled. You see, we, we pursue life. What we're living for is what we think is going to give us contentment, which so often, as, as this psalm is saying, is, hey, you're living for something that maybe you shouldn't be. You're looking to the ways of the world saying, that's what I want. But this psalm is actually telling us there's another way to live. There's a life that is possible that doesn't actually contain fret, doesn't actually contain comparison. You see, a life of constant comparison is not the end. That's not the design for the life we ought to live. The best is actually yet to come. And when we open our eyes to the reality that contentment doesn't actually rest in what we have or what we are trying to obtain, we're actually able to see for the first time that true contentment actually rests in who has us, who has a hold on our life. When we're able to see that, we can see that contentment is not only possible, it's actually attainable. It's something we can attain. So question two, how do we fight for contentment? I believe it's easy to say that the overwhelming majority of us are asking that question are struggling and saying, hey, I'm trying to be content, but discontentment just creeps into my life. And I think we need to realize in the psalm that David's not saying, hey, guys, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if you didn't fret. Like, you do you and I'll do me, but I would just suggest that it's a better life if you don't fret. He doesn't use that language at all, except he just comes out and says, fret not. It's a command in which he gives. You see, this is God telling us that contentment is possible. It's achievable. It's attainable. So how do we fight for it? Psalm 37 kind of gives us two, two lenses, two views in which we can see this fight, in which we can strive for contentment. And the first is really a, a charge to change our perspective on the future. And the second being to change our perspective on the present. So this future perspective, how does changing our view of the future actually change the reality of the now as we fight for contentment? 
Ultimately, David is calling us to change our gaze. We are called to truly ask this one question. What life am I living for? You see, so often we say, this is what I'm living for, and we think of specific things. We don't always think of the life that we're living for. Are we living for the present, or are we living for eternity? Are we living for the world of comparison, or the world of completion? We need to adjust our gaze to eternity. And David clearly lays out a contrast between the righteous, those that are actually pursuing a life for eternity, those that are pursuing contentment in God, versus those of the wicked, that those are saying, hey, I'm living for today and the joys that I can find, and I don't care about five years from now. I can worry about that later. So let's look and see how David actually compares these two, because it's a very stark contrast in the midst of this, of this psalm. Uh, we're going to have slides up that I'm going to just bust through the righteous versus the wicked, and you guys can follow along in the slides. So for the righteous, this is what is said. In verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 11, the meek shall inherit the land. 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Verse 22, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. And verse 28, he shall not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. 29, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. 34, wait for the Lord and keep his ways, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. That's what we're told about those that are righteous. And then what's said about the wicked? In verse 2, they shall soon soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. 9, The evildoers shall be cut off. 10, the wicked will be no more. 11, the arms of the wicked shall be broken. 20, they vanish. Like smoke, they vanish. Verse 36, he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. 38, the future of the wicked shall be cut off. We see this stark contrast. For the righteous, we're told, they're going to be the ones that inherit the land. David using the language of inheriting the land of Canaan, this promised land. But we know that this is also a universal truth for those that follow Christ. That we actually have a future inheritance as well. Think of the Beatitudes where it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He uses that that language. It's this image of lasting, peaceful presence of God. We have a future inheritance that no one can take from us, a heritage that will last forever. What about for the wicked? They're cut off, broken, disappeared. We're going to look for them, and there'll be nowhere to be found. You see, in light of eternity, envying the wicked, envying the worldly is ultimately pointless. When we know what comes with the wicked, why would we envy that? Why would we strive for that? You see, when we adjust our gaze towards eternity, the desires of the world start to actually diminish in value because we see something far greater coming. So how? How do we start to adjust our gaze towards eternity? It comes down to the question of who do you trust? Who do you trust with your future? Who do you trust with today? Who do you trust with eternity? 
true contentment comes to putting unwavering trust in the Lord. And I don't just mean this lip service of, hey, I know I need to say it, or it's on a dollar bill and God we trust, and so this is the mantra in which I live. But no, it's genuine submission and obedience to the ways of God, to the words of God. We see in this psalm in verse 3, the command, trust in the Lord and do good. It's this expression of active obedience and reliance on God. It's trusting and acting upon who God says that he is. Or verse 5, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Yet the beauty of the psalm is David doesn't just say, hey, trust in God, good luck. But he actually says, trust in God, and here, I'm going to show you why he is worthy of trust. And so David starts this beautiful image and starts sharing, this is how we know that God is worthy of trust. In verse 6, he says, he will act. He will bring forth righteousness as the light and justice as the noonday. You see, God is the one that acts for our righteousness, and he is the one that seeks justice. That is something we can get behind and cling to him for. In verse 17, he upholds the righteous. In 19, in the days of famine, they have abundance. That God is the one that provides in the midst of even feeling like we're without. Verse 24, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. This beautiful image of the Lord is with us, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of ups and downs of life, God's hand is steady in the midst of it. Well, this beautiful image in verse 25, where David's reflecting on his life, and he says, I have been young, and now I'm old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken of his children begging for food. This specific uh, uh, verse speaks very truly into my, my own life. Um, I was a kid that grew up in a household with a business owner. Um, and if you guys are like me, or maybe you currently are a business owner, you know how that works is you always have to pay your overhead before you pay yourself, uh, which led to many times of stress uh, and many times of anxiety within my family's life of wondering how are we going to get by. Uh, there's one specific season in which my dad did not take home a paycheck for six months. And I remember throughout this process, in my opinion, it was the dreaded reality, but for my parents, it was a huge blessing um, of the Oregon Trail car food stamps. And I remember as a young kid being embarrassed actually to go to the store with my mom to pull out the little wagon wheel on that card and give it to the cashier to check out. Yet as I look back on those times, I see that that's the provision of God. That's God saying, hey, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you, even as through the use of the government. Or think of people that are on OHP, beautiful systems that are in place so that we actually can be provided for. I think of the countless times, too, where random money was dropped on our mailbox and things like that. Or just seeing true testaments of, of the faithfulness of God, being able to trust in him. And then he continues in verse 28, he will not forsake his saints. The Lord's not going to turn his back on us. Verse 33, the Lord will not abandon him to his power. Again, this idea of protecting us in our time of need. 
And lastly, verse 40, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. These are the truths about God that are given to us in this psalm. This is a God in which we can trust. And we find freedom to be content when we know that that God's plans are better than ours. Then God's plans are bigger than ours. That the truths of this psalm are the truths of our lives. If we know that God is the provider, then we can go into tomorrow knowing that he's going to provide. If we know that God is the sustainer, then we can walk into seasons knowing that he is going to sustain us. He doesn't say he's going to always sustain us the way we want to be sustained, but he is going to sustain us because he does not forsake his saints. We know that God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, years from now. He is the same. If he was faithful in the past, he will be faithful today. He will be faithful a year from now, a week from now, years to come. And by this point, you're probably thinking, okay, Davey, like, that is awesome. I love that God cares about our future and that the reality of this future glory, this future hope that we have in eternity, like that's something to hold on to. But what about the here and now? What about today, right now, in the midst of my life? What about the fact that I'm supposed to graduate college in a month and I don't actually know if I'm going to pass this last class to be able to do it? What about the mortgage that I have to pay at the end of this month? What about the unknowns of the future? How can I be content today? What does this present perspective look like that God speaks into? And I respond with the question, what do you delight in? What do you delight in? What are the desires of your heart? For as we look at the desires of our heart, we actually see what delights we crave. Do you delight the things of God or do you delight in the things of the world? We see in this psalm that the things of the world are fleeting. The things of the world are perishing. Yet the things of God, as we've just seen, are eternal. I mean, in verse 2, he says, They will fade like the grass and wither like the green herbs. Just think of an Oregon lawn in August with no water. It's brown and dead. The rest of the year, it's green because it rains all the time. But in that month, it's brown and and dead. You see, there's true contentment that actually comes from delighting in the Lord and the things that are of the Lord. I love this quote from Martin Luther, where he says, I have held many things in my hands and have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I shall possess. You see, delighting in the Lord is saying, hey, Lord, I, I give these things over to you, saying that I know that you are sufficient, that you in and of yourself are the one in which I can find delight. David calls us to delight in the very essence of delight, who is Christ, the one who overflows. He's the fountain that overflows, the giver of our very life, the giver of our sustenance. And verse 4, it's again this command to delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
And don't we all desire contentment? Don't we desire to be satisfied with where we're at? So if we delight ourselves in the Lord, if we find delight in God, contentment is going to follow. Can you actually delight in the Lord and have jealousy at the same time? Can you delight in the Lord and covet your neighbor at the same time? No. And the beauty is we see this amazing picture of delighting in the Lord and the possibilities of it through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the most content person that ever lived. And the crazy reality is he didn't have much. He even said there were moments where he didn't have a place to lay his head. He did not have a home. He probably didn't even have much of an education. He was a carpenter. And yet we see him being content and simply delighting in the Lord and saying, the Father's will is my will. He was content because he knew who he was in the Father. He was truly delighted in the Lord. All that he did was for the sake of God. Yet the crazy thing is, unlike this psalm, the Lord abandoned Jesus in the power, to the power of the wicked and let him be condemned when brought to trial so that we wouldn't be. He went to the cross and ultimately bore our discontentment so that we could actually have contentment. And the beauty and craziness of the gospel, they're really flipping it 180, is that when we shift from viewing contentment as what we have to actually who has us, we realize that if Christ is the one that has us, we actually have everything. We realize that we have everything. You see, true contentment isn't just being okay with the current reality, okay with what I have. But it's actually realizing that in Christ, we have everything. We have all that we would ever need. Paul speaks specifically to this in 2 Corinthians, and it's going to be on the, on the screen ahead of us. And this is the words of Paul. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and from the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, especially these last two verses. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Do we not get it? That contentment rests in the fact that Jesus has us. That Jesus is enough in and of himself. It's not Jesus plus all these things in my life, but it's Jesus plus nothing actually equals everything. That when we cling to that, we have hope in the unknowns of the future. We have hope in the unknowns of today. 
Jesus is enough in and of himself. I want to conclude with, with a charge for us as a church and with a story. The charge is that as we adjust our gaze towards eternity, and as we delight in Christ, we realize that this is so much easier done in community. It's so much easier done in community than on your own. And we as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we get to play a vital role in linking arms and walking through life, walking through the battle of truly fighting for contentment. We struggle with contentment because ultimately we don't believe the truth of the gospel. We don't believe the truth of scripture, the truth of who Jesus is. We struggle to be content because a lot of times we wouldn't actually say Jesus is enough. It's just lip service in our lives. Discontentment is rooted in lies about God. So I urge us as a church to be the brothers and sisters that lovingly call out one another when we're believing lies about God. When in moments as I'm sharing my life with somebody and I'm sharing something that definitely counters the truth that we know about God, that somebody would lovingly say, hey, let's talk about this. We actually know that God is the provider, that God is the sustainer, that God is the one that gave you life, that gave you sustenance. And in those moments, we start to revert our eyes back to the gospel. The hope and desire is that gospel fluency just becomes part of our everyday life, part of the conversations we have with people. And so that as life goes on, we're able to speak the gospel into each other's lives. Because as we speak the truths of the gospel, these lies that we so easily let get embedded into our lives start to fade, start to disappear, and contentment actually becomes reality. Just imagine what our community would look like if daily we strove as a community for contentment. We lovingly were involved in one another's lives and constantly spoke the truths of the gospel to one another. What if we were the most content people in this city, in the city of Corvallis, on the campus of Oregon State, and in the city of Albany? This might be the most missional way in which we can live in this city. Because it's going to lead to questions. When discontentment is the norm, contentment is odd. And people are going to ask, why? They're going to ask, hey, why are you content when your future and work is unknown, when you're graduating in a month and you don't know what's next? Why do you seem content when you just lost your job and you don't know where that next job is going to be? Why are you content in different aspects of life? Those would be the questions that we get asked. And how powerful would it be if the answer was, I've discovered that contentment doesn't come in what I have, but it's in who has me. And the fact that Jesus has me means that I have everything through him. I have everything I would ever need. Not necessarily everything I'd ever want, but everything that I would ever need, I have through Jesus. You see, it's this realization that contentment doesn't rest in our current situations or accumulation of possessions. Contentment rests in the fact that Jesus has us. 
And you see, it's fun when your life with people, just living life, you actually get to experience this. You actually get to hear stories of this not just being something that's dreamed of, but an actual reality. And one of the guys that I've gotten the privilege of hanging out with fairly regularly over the last few months was really struggling with discontentment. He was looking towards his future and saying, hey, I, I want to switch my major. And by switching my major, I'm going to lose some scholarship money. And I don't know how I'm going to cover that. And he was looking towards this summer, and there was a foreign exchange program that he was looking at doing, um, but was really stressed about being gone this long for the summer. And the, these fears were, were eating up at him. And I could tell over time, as we had our small group and as we hung out, that these things were really getting to him. So I was like, hey, I'd love to meet up with you and process through some of this stuff with you. Um, it ended up being about a week before we were able to get together. And so I came into this meeting um, expecting to kind of hear just these struggles and this kind of heart pain that was going on. And we sat down at American Dream and started talking, and I was like, so what's going on with life? And I could tell his demeanor had changed. And he said, Davey, uh, this Monday I went to the coast uh, because that's often where I feel close to God, and I just started wrestling through these things, through these fears, uh, these things that just kept me worrying. And he's like, I can, I can say with, with tears in his eyes, I can say for the first time I experienced God. I truly experienced God. And these fears that I had, they just disappeared. And the powerful statement was when he said, when I realized that Jesus is actually number one in my life, then what do I have to fear? Like, what am I to worry about? What am I to fret about when Jesus is my number one? You see, he had clinged so much to that reality that still in the face of not knowing how he's going to cover those scholarships and not knowing what the summer is going to look like of going to a foreign country and not being able to work as much as being home, still in the midst of that, he was at peace. He was content. You see, it doesn't say that all of life is going to be figured out and all of life is going to be perfect. But it's the reality that when we realize that Jesus has us, then he's the one holding us, then we can go into the unknowns of life. We can go into the areas of life that seem fearful and are just leading into chaos, saying, well, even if I walk into the season I know that the creator of the universe, the one that loves me, the one that sent his son to die on my behalf, he has me. And if he has me, then I can go into these moments with confidence and at peace that the creator and sustainer of the universe will continually sustain for me. There's a true power that comes when we realize that this contentment is not wrapped up in what I can accumulate or my success or accolades, but it's actually wrapped up in the fact that God has us. Let's pray.